Welcome to Unicorny, the antidote to post-rationalized business books. This is a podcast about the business of marketing and the entrepreneurial mindset. So join me as I talk to leading thinkers, leading marketers, and senior executives to discover how they create value, capture markets, influence audiences, and drive business success. This is Unicorny, and I'm your host, Dom Hawes. In all the time it's taken us to produce the 30-odd shows we've aired, I've been laboring under the misapprehension that everybody knows what marketing is. Actually, what I mean is that everyone agrees what marketing is. We all know what it is, but as it turns out, very few of us agree. We all think it's something different. And if we can't agree what marketing is, why should we be surprised when non-marketers I ask with suspicion? I'm writing a whole show about that right now, which is going to air later in the year. But the aha moment that led to the woefully under-resourced research project that led to this realisation, well, that was today's show. I invited two thought leaders into the Unicorn Studio to discuss a subject that I framed like this. It's ground zero. We all know the market's tough. We all know yards are hard won. So starting from a blank sheet, how do you build a marketing function to deliver value in this market? And today I'm talking to Shane Redding and Chris Wilson. We're going to dive headlong into the topic. So coming up, we discuss getting the foundations right for a reboot, why organizational design, collaboration and team structure is key to success, and why any reboot in B2B has to allow time to enable the compounding of value creation. B2B needs to take brands seriously. Let me tell you a little bit about today's guests. You'll find their LinkedIn on our show notes at unicorny.co.uk. So first, Shane Redding is an independent consultant, speaker and trainer. She has over 35 years international business to business, direct and digital marketing experience. Shane is a highly sought after thought leader in all things B2B. She's also, by the way, an amazing coach and mentor to many And Chris Wilson is a business-to-business marketing specialist, co-founder, and chair of B2B agency Ernest. And he's someone who's championing the use of behavioral economics in B2B. Chris, by the way, is also one of the most thoughtful and self-effacing people in the business. After this very short but important shout-out, we'll go straight to the studio to meet them. B2B, Shane, talk to me. What's going on? Why is marketing in the doldrums? I don't think marketing is in the doldrums. The reason being, and I don't think it's actually just about B2B, I think we're in a massive societal, cultural, business, political shift. We need to re-examine everything, and B2B marketing is just part of that context. I'm going to come back to that, I think, in a little bit, but I want to rein back a little bit. So you think there's nothing wrong with the way that a lot of business business marketing is being done right now? There's nothing wrong if you want to run your business-to-business marketing for organisations that are of the past. If you want B2B marketing to be fit for the future, you've got to rip up the rule book. Okay, Chris, you're obviously at the sharp end in agency land. Talk to me about what you're seeing out there at the moment. Well, I wish there was a rule book to rip up. This is my problem with that. I think that actually we need foundations in place. And if the foundations that were in place, and as Shane said, it's time to rip them up and move on, 
I'd accept that, but but I don't because I think that actually so many of the foundations aren't in place. So I'm not going to disagree that the world is evolving and changing, you know, as, as it ever does. Shame will have a better take, I think, on me on where that's going. So I'm interested in hearing that. But I look at it as a function where there are some fantastic, talented people. What has evolved positively is that we're getting better and better people into the profession, which wasn't always the way. That was always quite tough. But we're missing some foundations. I think we've got some big gaps. I think that we've got some gaps at the top at a strategy level. I, I see a real lack of strategy going on, not because there isn't strategic thinkers, but because people are not being given the time to think. And I think that's a huge problem. And then kind of at the foundational bottom level is... We're trying to do innovative things when we haven't got the basics sorted. There's a lot changing at the moment, isn't there? I mean, you know, quite apart from that kind of post-COVID societal shift, we had a downturn on top of it and a war on interest rates and inflation. And, and sometimes I think it's tempting to think that, oh, everything's changed. We must reinvent everything. Uh, but, but these things tend to be cyclical. You know, the pendulum swings backwards and forwards. It's not going to swing back this time, is it? it? Absolutely not. And this is why I think there's a real danger. And I am going to disagree nicely with Chris that there are really good strategic foundations in marketing that have worked really well. The problem, and I think this is probably where Chris and I agree, is that they are not taught or understood amongst all marketing practitioners. And so there is a gap. However, I'm less worried about that now because I do think we're at this tipping point. And actually my worry about using frameworks that were fit for the past is they're not fit for the future. What kind of frameworks? Are, we, are you talking about strategy models in particular? Strategy models is a oh, very good example. We're going to have to disagree here again. I have this discussion quite often. I was just listening to a podcast actually on the way in to the office yesterday morning where... Bizarrely, a marketing person had done a marketing degree. Doesn't happen very often. But was lamenting the fact that he had, because all of the things he said that he learned in college were completely useless when he got into work. There's a difference here. So he's being employed in work on tactical execution, not in, or not in strategy. And what they teach in college is strategy. But the thing about good strategy models is they're just as relevant whatever happens. If you go back to their course, if you take five forces or you take value chain analysis, you may need to adapt how you create your output slightly, but the outcomes and the outputs from the model are still valid, I would argue. I'm going to go in a different path, I think, from both of you. I don't disagree with some of those foundations because I was you know for my sins I've studied that got the certificates so on and so forth so I, I still think there's huge validity I think how you pitch that back to your stakeholders has changed and I think that there's something in what Shane's saying around how society's evolved how you communicate if you're if you're a leader in a business right now how you're going to communicate strategy, I think, has evolved. And I've seen that get into a point of how do you make it engaging? So the rigour becomes the thing that you start with, but how you bring that to life, how you make it engaging, how you bring people along the journey of people who've got zero attention span these days. And, and you know, maybe that's always been the case, but you, you've seen that accelerating. And that's there's been a lot of studies neurologically about how that's changing as well. So I think that the one big change, I think, is how you communicate these things. I would argue that I would still be using a lot of those 
very solid foundations that I think give me an amazing structural way of looking at strategic problems. But the way I'm going to kind of deliver the output, the outcome, the story to stakeholders internally, that includes, you know, obviously we're an agency, so that's how we talk to clients as well, but how we help our clients deal with their very challenging stakeholders. My God, they've got worse over the last couple of years. How you bring them along the journey, I think that is an art form, actually. That's what's missing as well, I would say. So I think there's a nuance here. I'll take on board what you say, Dom, about models being always applicable. I think the problem is, and it very much goes to Chris's point, it's the communication of them and the execution of them. And the danger is with those frameworks that we're all, you know, those of us who do use them so familiar with, that we default back to how they've been applied in the past. So what I'm sort of encouraging is, well, would a new model allow us to rip them up and think differently? And I'll give you one that, you know, just again to go, and I've I've spent all my career saying B2B marketing is different to consumer. Actually, I'm going to stop saying that now. And I think we should be more consumer. And actually going forwards, organisational change, we need to think about serving our business customers much more like consumers. And that would really help. I wonder whether you may have borrowed a bit of that off me then, because we set the agency out to do exactly that. Um, there are, of course, huge differences between B2B and B2C. But what's always kind of angered me, actually, is that can't be a inward-looking, myopic, defensive way of looking at the industry that we're in or the part of the industry that we're in. Because, my God, you know, business people are still people. They just happen to be at work. So how you communicate with them is going to be very, very similar. And how you communicate with your stakeholders is also in, in that same thing. We, d- we don't radically change when we go in to work. The way we think, act and feel actually accentuates a lot of the sort of emotional system one way of thinking. It actually gets accentuated. If you read a book called Herd, talks about this, about how in group scenarios we, we lean more into that rather than we don't suddenly become more rational. We go completely the other way. That's going to be a really big shift in thinking but also in priorities for today's b2b marketing organization because if you compare a consumer marketing organization and a b2b marketing organization i think you would see that their priority list looks really quite different we're talking about everything all in one at the moment and i think there are two things going on here so the models and frameworks often they'll sit in the background right so they're not something necessary i take your point they're not something necessarily that will communicate the challenge is how you take the output the strategy you are going to follow and make that relatable and i and i, and I get that i absolutely 100 percent buy also your argument about attention deficit that it's very very hard to communicate and consistently with people who don't have very long attention spans my belief though is that this has always been the case so so i think one of the falsities of our industry is the mistaken belief that our end target customers actually look at what we're saying and read what we're writing and view what we're putting out there with the same level of interest that we do yeah they don't give a monkeys do they couldn't care less and they just don't have time consumer marketers have always known that let's use two opposing examples here b2b a big erp system that is a company changing endeavor you get fired or promoted based on how well that goes so there's a lot a lot at stake buying a toilet roll 
Not a lot at stake, really. I mean, let's not go too detailed in that, but there's not a lot at stake. But you think about the effort that goes in to promoting those. Far more effort goes into the toilet roll, bizarrely. Far more emotional endeavour goes into to getting you to care about something that you genuinely don't really care about at all. And if you think about that, why on earth can't we flip that round? Why, why on earth can't we take something as amazing and as important and as interesting as this huge company-changing platform and put the same energy into promoting that than bizarrely we do as an industry into toilet rolls. So I think one of the reasons we have a massive problem is product and marketing have become divorced. Mm -hmm. So to Chris's point, nobody wants to buy an ERP system. Anybody, you know, out there, you know, really passionate about buying one? No, it's what does it do for you? And I think there are some tech businesses that are around now that have challenged the approach. HubSpot is a brilliant example that came in allowing an individual to buy. And in effect, it got adopted across the organisation because freemium model, very low price point. And now they're selling up the value chain and they're now in enterprise. That model, that disruptive model started with the product. So that is what I think marketing, strategy, product should be really thinking about. How do we be more consumer and design new roles? So this is annoying because I'm starting to agree with Shane, um, which is really challenging. The other great example I completely agree on HubSpot is um, Salesforce. Their real innovation, they had a number of innovations. One was the, uh, a category reframe, but the other one was that the product could be bought by an individual on their company credit card back in the day. What a great way to seed that into an organisation and, and then, as you said, go up the value chain. I would say, though, my question out to our community, and I, I'm going to include myself here, product, that's a really big area. I wouldn't feel qualified, experienced enough to take product under my wing if I was running a marketing team. I think that's a really big shift if we're saying that. The other big one, everyone knows this because I bang on about it all the time, is pricing. If you're talking product, you pretty much have to to bring the other PE involved, which is pricing. I think these are skill sets and experience sets that may not be right out there right now. I would go further than that. I've done some, albeit anecdotal research on this, in the various groups I belong to, and pricing is not seen as part of marketing's core skill set anymore. There are specialist pricing departments or it sits in finance, but I 100% agree with you. So I, I agree with also, by the way, about product. I would not feel qualified, but... As the part of the organisation that is supposed to understand, in Jeffrey Moore terms, compelling reason to buy, that has to feed up uh, into product strategy. So I think marketing has to feed into product strategy, but I, but, but I think product these days, particularly in B2B where it's so complex, it's not about you know, a shrink-wrapped product. It, it's something that has tentacles throughout a whole organisation. I think that is probably too big for all of it to under marketing, but marketing has to be at the table. And I'm not sure that it is enough. This episode is sponsored by Selby Anderson, the agency group that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future. Selby Anderson's agencies serve global clients in financial services, enterprise tech, channel, industry, utilities, pharmaceutical and biotech. If you want to win the future, find out more at selbyanderson.com. Shane rocked me 
right from the start today with her spot-on observation that marketing itself isn't in any kind of a crisis. It's the organizations themselves, not their marketing functions, that are, well, they're becoming dysfunctional. Shane referenced the massive societal, cultural, business and political shifts we've seen in recent years. And by the way, she didn't even mention technology. Her point is basically that everything has been changing around us, but the old ways of running a business still persist. And I've hinted at this in past episodes. We're going to come on to that next, that kind of more evolutionary organizational design theory, and I'm planning future episodes on that too. But as marketers, entrepreneurs, and or leaders, this is really important. Because if you want to sort out a function in your business, you need to cure the dysfunction first. So where is the dysfunction? Well, Chris pointed out that one of the most dysfunctional facets of marketing as a practice in business is that the foundations are seldom in place. We need a better, more consistent approach to training and development. We need to nurture and prize strategic skills. And importantly, we need to allow our people more time to think. We've talked about some of this before, and I'm sure we're going to come back to it again. But the industry needs a more comprehensive approach to professional development. Without that, the dysfunction persists, so we can forget about even talking of a reboot. Learn, then adjust is a much smarter way of improving. For those who've studied more theoretical and strategic tools and frameworks, Shane suggested they might be more use for the past than they are in the future, and that's something I encounter a lot. I argued that the tools and models taught in business school actually are timeless, You know, if research is the starting point for good strategy development, analysis is what gets it going. And models like Porter's Five Forces and a thorough pest analysis, value chain analysis, Ansoff, the Boston matrices, even the most basic of all, the SWOT analysis, these models and tools, they don't date. It's how you apply them that matters most, or so I thought. Just as important is how you communicate your strategy, how you bring it to life, and how you translate it to guide colleagues' activity. Attention spans appear to be getting shorter, so we need to work extra hard to make the case for more strategic, longer-term activities. This inability to think, plan, and act over the long term is something we're going to come back to at the bottom of today's show. But next, I wanted to explore organizational design in a little bit more detail. When Shane said frameworks of the past don't necessarily work for the future, part of what she was talking about is management frameworks. The top-down, hierarchical pyramid where requests go up and approval comes down. I kicked off this part of the conversation by asking Shane what the alternative is. So, instead of departments, silos, specialisms, squads, agile squads... You have your pricing person, your product person, your marketing person, your sales person in your squad. We've got to change because it's too slow when you're sitting separately. The brilliant Scott Stockwell, who's been on this podcast before, has a fabulous way of describing it as the new sort of airline model where you have flex resource. This is why I said that it's more than marketing. And I think the organisations that are going to win are going to rip up the organisational design of their businesses, they're going to rip up the rule book and they're going to start with a culture that is all about these squads. You're speaking to the converted with me here. Um, There are many organisations who are doing this very well already. There are often cited examples of Burtzorg 
um, the healthcare outfit in the Netherlands, and of course Handelsbanken, um, who operate in exactly this way. Maybe we can dive into that in a minute, because I want to look at flexible resourcing, because I think that probably is part of the answer, and having cross-functional squads. Let's just explore those societal changes and the catalysts that are leading us to say that the old model doesn't work. Shane, when you say we should be designing for the future, not the past, around squads, what are the key drivers that you're seeing that is changing how we work? What people want from their working lives, I don't think we'll ever go back to where I started in my career. There is now an expectation for much more flexibility whether that's where you work, how you work, um, what work actually means. And that's why I think it's so fundamental, because we know in our world, our magic formula, dust, is people. It's people that make the difference to how we use technology, how we go to market, how we win. If we don't have the best talent, then actually we're not going to win. So we've got to, I think, put this at the centre of what we create to be future forward. And that's not that elastic band of denying and going back to where we were before. And that really means building something quite different and actually quite exciting because actually you can have the best talent wherever it is in the world. You can be always on because you can chase the sun. There's lots about this is super positive, but being really honest, there's lots of us who find that very challenging because it's not what we know. I'll add something into that. Um, I don't think this is an agreement or a disagreement, but something that I've been quite interested in recently. One of the challenges organisations, I think they've always faced this, but I think this has gone to a breaking point level now, is if you think about career paths, career paths used to be kind of linear, sometimes quite frustrating, um, but, but linear. You know, you'd become good at something, you'd get promoted in that thing, you you then start to run a team, you then run a function, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's been some really interesting research very recently done around the generations coming into work not actually aspiring to that. Like the, the idea of I become a good at something, so then I start managing people. I don't want to be a manager. I don't want to lead a team. I don't want to do... Th- those are the new things coming through. And I think that's really different. And I have no idea what impact that's going to have on our teams on marketing departments in, in, in the industry that we're within. But that's a radical shift where the goal is no longer to get promoted, have a team, have a bigger team than the next person, so on and so forth, because then you've got different paths. One of the great organisations used to have a, a really good way of modelling that path, not based on automatic promotion, based on skill, but on aptitude as a manager or as a leader. Salesforce, another great example of where they pick people in their various teams and um, they they don't promote them, but they put them on a course to see whether they would be good if they got promoted. What what a brilliant way of doing that because just because you're a great practitioner doesn't mean you're going to be a great manager or a great leader. But my God, what's happening when people are saying, well, they don't want that path anyway? I don't think we're built for that yet. So am I agreeing with Shane on this? I think I am in a way, but what I am struggling with is how any organisations are going to try and manage that talent without frustrating that talent or directing that talent in completely the wrong way. I think there are a couple of things here as well for me. How does that talent get the basics learned? 
is one of the challenges. And I'm not talking about hybrid working here because, again, I couldn't really give a monkeys about whether people in the office or not. I'll, I'll sort of come back to that. But increasingly, the very basics won't be done by people. Well, not by people in our office. They'll either be done offshore or they'll be done, you know, a lot of the basics eventually will be done by machine. But how does a person learn when they come into a business, the basics, if they don't go through that apprenticeship type model? And, and we don't have an answer for that yet. Like you, actually, Chris, although I'm an, you know, an anti-hierarchy person, particularly because I think the best general managers aren't necessarily the best functional people. The best general managers are, by very nature, generalist, not specialist, and it's a different, a very different skill. But it's very hard to manage an organisation, particularly where there are expectations from your customers on delivery coming in a certain way, and you want to try and break that model. That's really hard. And unfortunately, in the marketing industry, for example, clients want to see someone with a fancy title talking to them when they come to a meeting. That has to change. That has to change because actually the best person to do that role might not be the person with the job title of account director or group account director. And currently, I do not see progress being made in that There's particular. None. The I think it's going the other the, way. I agree with you. We're constantly berated for pitch teams, but like every single client that we work with will operate the equivalent of a pitch team. They put their best people into the sales process who are good at selling, functional, and then they put their best people in who are good at delivering functional. It doesn't have to be the same person. Yet there's an expectation when it comes to agencies, and we want people to see the people we're buying. It's crap. So on that, there's three things. I think the first thing is, I believe there's a model that is starting to emerge that's very exciting about how people will get their knowledge going forwards. And it's not the apprenticeship within a business. It's the community apprenticeship. And we're starting to see that with things like Propolis for B2B marketing, where this network of client-side marketers is supporting other client-side marketers. And actually, the big breakthrough for me, and it has always been the case when I've done professional training and qualifications, is I can stand up and talk about something. But when somebody sitting next to you goes, that's exactly the same problem I've got. And then they get together and they have the copy and they share it. And it's there. And it's out there on YouTube or whatever. There's lots of self-learning. But the bit I think that really helps embed learning is when you find your tribe and you're able to share your experiences. Now, the danger with that is that it tends to be layered and therefore, you're only getting that experience from your peer level, not maybe, and this is maybe why we have the gap around strategy, because they're not getting the chance to interact with those who would be able to lift their heads and go, yeah, you're doing a really great job down here on sorting out what a proper MQL should look like. And this is our experience. But actually, where does that fit in the business strategy? So how do we enable this web of expertise to be more available, really. So that's that's one point. The second point about who do I want in the room and who do I believe that, you know, if we're going to win any business, I want the subject matter expert. Doesn't matter whether it's an engineer, doesn't matter whether it's a salesperson, but it's the person who genuinely will solve my problem. And that's addressed in the Jolt Effect. And that book is brilliant on the whole way the buying process is broken. It is brilliant. You made me read it. In fact, you made me read it twice because the first time I put it down because I got a bit 
bored, frankly, after the first couple of chapters, and you beat me, and maybe go back and read it, and it is good. But the subject matter, I mean, the subject matter expert, what is it? I mean, which subject, and at what stage of the campaign, or life cycle, or challenge? You know, if we're talking about cross-functional teams, if we're talking about Scott's, you know, airline model, where, you know, you have a core team that could be cross-functional, and you augment it as you need to, very difficult to deliver, by the way, and again, we, there needs to be some technology somehow to underpin that. I'm not sure it's there yet. I would also argue that so many organisations, if they tried to do that tomorrow, would end up with chaos and nobody staying in their lane. I I don't like that phrase at all, by the way, staying in the lane, but where I've seen it go wrong is where it's a pile-on. Everyone feels like, I've got a role in that, I've got an opinion in that. Actually, that, that creates total chaos. So it's not that I don't buy the idea. I think the implementation of it... I mean, that's a very new world for, for me personally. Honestly. And that's why I think this isn't something you retrofit. This is something where you are starting with a blank piece of paper. Businesses that are starting tomorrow will be much easier. So what I'm saying for those of you who've got legacy organisations, watch out because the businesses that are going to come and eat your lunch will not be structured like you because they can. Now, some super smart organisations, and in fact, this is addressed in one of your favourite books in Crossing the Chasm, actually do rip things up and say, we've got to start again. So you see this coming out of growth teams in some marketing um, departments that are allowed to be very experimental, do things in a different way, but they're also absolutely, to Chris's point, they're sort of protected They're ring-fenced and they have really clear objectives, KPIs, and they're allowed to break things really important, um, but very clear roles and responsibilities within that team. So that's a great place to start. If you haven't got one, have a growth marketing team. You do often see that in large organisations where they're trying to launch a new thing or even a new business within that large organisation. They create a kind of entrepreneur-led scale-up. And you do get a very different um, modus operandi in that organisation, but very different people. My other concern on this is you are often going to fail if you ask the same people who've got the same personalities to then flip into a new way of working because they might not be the right people to do that. The, The way they think, what they care about, how they operate with their peers, stakeholders, colleagues, etc., may not be suited to that. So potentially not just are we ripping up the rule book, but we're looking for a a wildly different set of people. So we are bizarrely going to talk about exactly this subject next week with the amazing Geoffrey Moore. So next week we're getting him back to talk about Zone to Win. And Zone to Win is his playbook for how enterprise does exactly this. Dividing the business into four zones, productivity and performance being like today's Horizon One, a transition zone being what's going to be in place in years maybe two, three, and then the incubation zone, which is what you're talking about, entrepreneur, totally different culture, totally different type of people, autonomous within the organisation. And there's lots going on in incubation, but only one thing goes through transition at once. He'll tell us next week, but I think you need to be at something like 1% or 2% of revenues to come out of incubation into transition. And you come out of transition into productivity and and performance when you're at 10% of net revenues. And that's how large organisations like Salesforce and Microsoft have managed to innovate well. But for smaller businesses, it works just as well, actually. And, you know, I was thinking, actually, Shane, where you were talking there about this isn't evolutionary for a marketing department in an organisation. If they want to build for the future, there needs to be some disruption. They could use the same model. Choose a team 
to market a product or service, put it effectively into incubation, build it differently, run it differently, prove the case, and then, you know, one product or service at a time change the model. We've actually seen that with a client of ours. So they are launching a very new thing in a market that they're in, but just not in that particular area. And they are doing it very, very differently. And it feels like a different business, but it's within the business. So that I think that's a very good call out. So this is super exciting for me because the one thing we haven't talked about is actually what that means for us marketing to our customers who've adapted very different models to the ones we're used to marketing to. So take that brilliant, and I love it, so I'm very excited about the next episode. When do I want to market to the entrepreneurial team to get them to try something that will help them build a new product? When do I want to market to the scale-up team? And how I do that is going to be very different. So actually, the, the, and everybody who knows me knows, you know, I will not finish a podcast without talking about data. The data and insight that we need now, and we've got available, we're not looking enough at organisational structure to understand where we should go and land. We just look at the business. We just go, key account. You know, we're not thinking in building our propensity models about how that business works. Look, it's a good point. I think it's very easy for a marketing team to get lost in itself and in its own objectives and to lose, potentially lose connection with where the business is going. Now, if there's an innovation or an incubation zone going on, that might be because they don't know about them, to be honest, you know, because that is a discrete, distinct unit. Maybe it is a marketer's challenge. If the strategy is changing, the rest of the business needs to communicate that back to marketing so that marketing and its agencies, by the way, we always talk about marketing as though it's just an in-house thing. But the model of the future we haven't even discussed yet when it comes to agencies and clients has to be a much closer integration, I think. So we're talking about a combined team. But there has to be regular communication, I think, back from the business. Not least, for example, on what actual business objectives are being met or not or contributed to. I'm not sure how much of that goes on. In the really big, well-organised companies, of course it does. But in SMEs, when everyone's scrabbling around for resource and things are tough, I'm not sure. Let's change lanes a little bit. Let's talk about today's tactical approach and that kind of belief that you've got to build always on systems that underpinned by half a billion technology products and the cost of that. So I think if we're ripping up the rule book on marketing this year, I think one of the things that we should take a pretty brutal assessment on is our MarTech stack. In fact, I wouldn't even call it a stack. I would call it a kind of jigsaw puzzle that hasn't been put together yet. I think that, and I have seen many times, that organisations have a lot of platforms, a lot of tools, and are majoring on a few of them, but the others they're still paying the licence for. In tough times, and let's face it, this year will be tough from a budgetary point of view. Let's kill off some of those licenses. Let's simplify the stack. Let's focus on the ones that are really adding value. I know that's not easy because some licenses are longevity-wise not going to play into that. But let's be really brutal. What's really moving the business forward from a technology point of view? Because half of it isn't. I'm not going to argue with that. That's a very, very quick way to waste budget. 12-month in advance SaaS contracts. And don't let, deliver. let's be honest about this. This is where we have some amazing technology vendors doing amazing marketing. But this is a call out. Stop marketing your platform that it does everything. I am seeing some really, one, really worrying trends of 
tools, which might be workflow tools uh, for internal, starting to be used for marketing automation campaigns. That is not their core functionality. There is, as I completely agree with Chris, you know, tech bloke, get rid of it, go on a low-fat diet and you'll be much better for it, healthier and fitter and saving money. But the other thing is, you know, don't use the wrong tech for what you need to do. How is it helping your customer? I feel for marketing teams on this one because they are oversold every day of the week. And it is, you know, we have to go in and undo some of those sales conversations because we just know that some of that stuff does not deliver the outcomes that the vendor has been saying it does. There's a challenge to tech marketers here, actually, the people marketing those stacks in the first place. A, stop over-promising. And B, make it as easy to get out of those contracts as it is to get into them. Because we've all been in a situation, I'm in one right now, um, I'm not going to name it because they've got more lawyers than me, where I want out of a contract because we haven't used their technology for 12 months. I missed the renewal date by one day, and they're now telling me I've got another 12 months to pay. Or I can pay in advance for the next whatever it is, Uh, to get out of the contract. It's absolute garbage, that kind of behaviour. They don't give a toss about customer success. They've got a department called that, but they don't give a toss about them. And that has to change. So if you follow Shane's rip up the rule book approach, um, that model of licensing does not fit with that. And so we need to change that. It's garbage. Organisational design, it's an enormous subject. It's something that we will come back to again and again throughout this year because it's absolutely fundamental to the kind of transformation businesses need to go through if they are going to continue to grow and create value. Now, how the practice of marketing fits into that new kind of organisation is right at the top of my mind at the moment. And a high-level takeaway of the conversation you've just heard is that it's very clear that modern marketing is not just about promotion. It's not just about promoting products. It's about understanding and connecting with customers on a much deeper level, utilising technology and data to drive things, having the agility, the responsiveness and the resilience to react to what our customers want, see, need, think and feel. Our markets are changing really quickly, so these things matter. Here's how I think about it. Businesses get organised around the technology that's available to make them productive. When many of today's businesses were designed, with enormous hierarchies, hero leaders and rigid rules, the technology was pen and paper and the postal service. And when things are that slow, you need tight controls. Telex, fax and mainframes increased the speed of mission-critical computing and communication, but they weren't accessible to many, so the same structures survived and thrived. These structures were the hierarchy we've discussed, but also things like siloed departments, think fiefdoms, budgeting processes, policies and procedures. It's why the computer says no more than yes. The thing about all of these things is they're internal. The customer doesn't know about them and certainly doesn't care about them beyond acknowledging that you have a governance framework. And then we got personal computing pre-World Wide Web, of course, and that started to change things. Suddenly, we all had personal computing power on our desks. And when connected on a local or wide area network, we had the ability to cooperate and collaborate across functional boundaries. This was the first opportunity we had in business to redesign our organizations around customers' needs, not our ability to operate. But it wasn't until the web appeared, supported by SaaS applications, 
that we all got properly joined up. And that's where we are today. But still, the same functional boundaries and dysfunctional management structures, frameworks, controls and processes abound. There's loads of literature now about how business needs to reboot with new models, cultures and management styles. All of them are underpinned by good, solid systems thinking. So we need to start thinking of marketing less as a function or department and more as a way of selecting and connecting with customers on a deeper, more joined-up level. And by the way, your customers are facing exactly the same challenges. Things like, how do we take advantage of the synergies between personalization and data-driven decision-making to create better targeted activity for more effective outcomes? And how can we reorganize to create cross-functional teams that serve our customers better and give them the autonomy, technology and tools they need to act without having to ask permission. And the big one, how do we rethink, measure and report value creation over the longer term and lose our slavish servility to this quarter's numbers at the expense of all else? And that's what I asked Chris and Shane to round off today's show. I can't see anyone wanting to lurch from one short-term goal to the next to the next tactical push let's get sales in next week well the sales cycle is 18 months that's clearly not going to happen marketing teams are under that insane and stupid pressure to deliver impossibles there and at ignite in fact both ignites this year and the chicago one and the london one This was talked about a lot, about the inability, despite wanting to build long-term, always-on programs, the inability to do that because of the lack of stability at a budgetary level. Budgets get removed. You're you're trying to set up a 12-month program. By the way, 12 months is tiny short. If you've you've even got a nine-month sales cycle, you do not need a 12-month plan. You you need a five-year plan. But we're struggling to get to that at the moment because no one is putting stability at a budgetary level, which then rips the guts out of any plans you've got. Having said all that, I think with some clever language, we can make that happen. I think we've got to be very careful about the language we use to describe the programmes we're building in our marketing functions to the stakeholders. For example, brand as a marketeer, I love that word, I believe in that word, I read books about that, I watch things, I listen to podcasts about that. Don't go near stakeholders with that word. Maybe use the word reputation or something like that. Something that means something to non-marketing people. In B2B organisations, you have to do that. You do not have to do that, funny enough, so much in consumer organisations because if you are selling toilet rolls, the business gets the importance of brand. They, they get all that because you don't have a sales force that goes out and sells to- toilet poles because they wouldn't be very well paid for a start. But to get to that long-term programme activity, I think there's the two things are, one, change the language about how you describe them so that they align to what non-marketing people care about. And I think that getting that right is absolutely critical because at the moment those long-term initiatives are falling on barren ground and budgets get pulled so they start and then they stop so on and so forth and that has to stop we don't know anything about start stop do we it God, is t- 2023 <coughs> was the year of start stop and i cannot do another year like that that's crazy it's apart from the damage that businesses do to themselves when they when they create budget take it away create budget take away they're killing their agency partners 
absolutely killing them, I have to say. From my day job, uh, as you say, this year has been brutal for exactly that reason. Our, our clients have found it just as tough and, and um, some of them are under obscene amounts yeah. of unreasonable pressure and we've got a mental health pandemic right now. Yeah. And it's this behaviour that's driving. And it's not just marketing, by the way. I've spent all my corporate finance colleagues are saying the same thing. Everyone who is involved in any kind of consulting, business service, or you know, project or service delivery is saying the same thing. On off, on off, on off. So we're going to see. We've all had the pain, the agency pain. But what about our client pain? Because we've abandoned them. We started, got them all excited, and then the budget got cut. Never hear from them again. You know. So I think this is why. This recalibration, I really love what Chris is talking about there, about using the right language. We've got to be thinking much more about the effect and the impact on our customers by just this stop-start and what it does to their reputation. You know, how does our reputation... Because if you look, and we have... I love history. You look back at the history of organisations that in previous times have got through tough times... It's often the private businesses. It's the companies like JCB who openly talk about the fact that they've been able to continue to invest. Who's got the best performance out there at the moment? JCB are one of them. Double profits in the last two years. So that understanding of the damage to a company's value because you've not continued to keep the lights on, if you like, um, is really important. And this is why brands coming back. I think brands, I'm really excited and I'm not a brand marketer. I'm learning loads about the genuine value of the brand to a balance sheet. It's really powerful. I completely agree with that as a brand marketer. So dangerously, I'm starting to agree again. If there's one thing, I think one message we could land around this brand thing, beyond just maybe tweaking the language around it sometimes, is that whatever you're doing this year doesn't pay off this year. It pays off next year or the year after. And just getting people to think like that or to realise that or to have expectations like that changes the game completely. Because if we're promising things that are coming back within our fiscal, that's crazy because it's completely going to bite us. It is about building future value. Even landing the point, this is all about next year, we have to start there. The thing about long-term value as well is, is is the return is not linear, it compounds. Cumulative. It yeah. is cumulative. So, yep. Yeah, so the longer you stick at it, the more you do it, the higher percentage return you get. I agree. So maybe we need to, because I, I love reframing, I love taking other industries and then applying the way they think, act, frame things into ours. Maybe it's like pensions and day trading. Pensions is our brand marketing. This is our future day trading, highly volatile, could get quick returns, but also quick losses. Maybe we start thinking like that. And actually that fits very well to the model that you were saying is coming next, those four teams. Actually, you could align that really well. As marketers, entrepreneurs and business leaders, one of our biggest challenges is to de-risk and optimise the interplay between short-term performance and long-term value creation. And as you know, that is highly complex. In today's conversation, we hinted at and then articulated in no uncertain terms that an essential element of modern marketing is agility. 
If you want to overcome the challenges of the long term and meet short-term demands of customers and businesses, you have to increase the responsiveness and agility in your business. It's not just one thing or the other. You can't be polar about this. And ESG is a perfect example. Top of the pops before the downturn, ESG's pretty much disappeared from the must-do for many. But the need for equality, sustainability and good governance, well, that's more acute now than it was before, but our short-term attention is elsewhere, so it's just disappeared off the agenda. But embracing sustainability shouldn't be a response to consumer demand. Neither should equality or governance. These are all essential investments in your brand's longevity. Similarly, strategic partnerships seem to have lost their shine with many over the last 18 months, they're often seen as a long gameplay. Partnerships, though, can have an immediate impact on your customer's experience. Partnerships not only enhance your service offering if you do them well, they also improve customer engagement and experience. So while they may not always put pounds in the piggy bank, partnerships and the enhancement they bring you can increase stickiness. And that is a short-term win because the first rule of sluggish markets is don't lose your customers. In any recession, downturn, stagnation or slowdown, financial prudence emerges as the bedrock of sustainable strategy. Now, that might not be sexy, but it is true. And we've all seen, and we discussed earlier, those start-stop funding patterns. We've all had to struggle and we've all had to come to terms with budgeting and market uncertainty. But start-stop is the antithesis of prudence. For your brand investments to mature and yield dividends, which compound, by the way, you need to secure a runway. If you're not confident about the longevity of your budget, scale back your ambition, downsize your runway, but keep the activity on track. Consistency, or lack of it, is much more visible and confidence-shattering than a scaled-back approach. This kind of budgetary responsibility as well enables us to invest in our people and platforms consistently, creating a virtuous cycle that supports both our immediate needs and our plans for future growth. The longer we commit to a cohesive strategy that balances our short-term wins with our long-term ambitions, the greater the returns we will get and the greater our influence will be in our businesses. This approach isn't just about being better marketers or entrepreneurs. It's about redefining the value of marketing within our organizations and to our stakeholders, showcasing that the true measure of success isn't just in immediate returns, but building an enduring and highly valuable legacy. Next week, I am back in the studio with the incredible Jeffrey Moore to talk about an organizational framework to enable all that we've talked about today. We're dissecting his book, Zone to Win, which lays out a playbook for organizing your enterprise to maximize performance and productivity without stifling innovation. That is all for today though, folks. Thank you very much for your time and I will see you next week. You've been listening to Unicorny, the antidote to post-rationalized business books. If you've enjoyed the show, why not hit follow? We'd love you to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and it only takes a few seconds, but it means a lot to us. Or if it's easier for you, please recommend us to a friend or post on LinkedIn tagging at Unicorny. I'm your host, Dom Hawes. Nicola Fairley is the series producer. Laura Taylor McAllister is the production assistant. Pete Allen is the editor. And Ornella Weston and me, Dom Hawes, are your writers. 
Unicorny is a Selby Anderson production. Now, go win the future. This episode is sponsored by Selby Anderson, the agency group that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future. Selby Anderson's agencies serve global clients in financial services, enterprise tech, channel, industry, utilities, pharmaceutical and biotech. If you want to win the future, find out more at selvianderson.com.